Hello, and thank you for joining us for the Calmly Create Wealth podcast, U.S. Policy Fixed Income Edition. My name is Marcel Mares, and I'm a portfolio strategist for Century Funds. Today on the podcast, we have a special guest, James Dukavage, a.k.a. Duke. He's a veteran PM, CIO for Century Funds, and co-CIO for CI Multi-Asset Management. He brings over 20 years of experience successfully managing fixed income through the tech bubble, financial crisis, and, and the current COVID pandemic. Today on the podcast, Duke will share his views on the U.S. presidential elections, the Fed's recent and anticipated moves, and Century Fund's asset allocation and fixed income positioning. But before we get started with questions for Duke, I want to provide you with a quick performance update for the Century U.S. Monthly Income Fund from a fixed income perspective, looking at the capital preservation. For those interested for an equity perspective update, this was covered last week on our podcast with Jack Hall, and it is saved on the CI.com website under the Century Insight podcast section, and it is the last podcast entry. Back to the Century Monthly Income Fund. Since the U.S. market peak on September 2nd to present, October 7th, the S&P is down about 2.8% versus only negative um, 0.9% for the Century U.S. Monthly Income Fund. The fund only had about one-third of the U.S. equity market drawdown, and this was achieved while having slightly more than two thirds invested in equities. And really this is a function of active management and positive security selection of both high quality equities and, and primarily investment grade bonds. And so as you know, this is a balanced fund with an approximately 64% allocation to equities and 36% to fixed income. And it's a great solution for investors worried about volatility, worried about overheated markets, but not willing to sit on the sidelines. And so since the September peak, the fixed income allocation contributed 1% to the overall return. The primary performance drivers were corporate bonds at 21% of the fund. Key contributors included an Air Canada single A bond with seven years to maturity and 3.8% yield. Another contributor was Bentaz Realty. It's a triple B investment grade bond. It is a U.S. health rate. The bond has three years to maturity and yields 3%. And lastly, a U.S.-denominated TransSelect triple B investment grade bond, which installs and operates high voltage lines with customers mainly in Chile. It also has a three years to maturity and has a 4.3% yield. In addition, allocation to government bonds at 15% of the fund contributed as well. And it was primarily within the short-term segment of the U.S. Treasuries market. So with that, moving on, questions for Duke. Can you comment on the U.S. presidential election race and given Biden's lead, how likely is a Democratic sweep and what would be the implications for the U.S.-China trade, fiscal stimulus, corporate taxes and capital markets? Yeah, thanks, Marcel. Uh, this is James speaking. So I thank you very much for taking the time out to listen to this podcast. Uh, I'm not going to handicap the U.S. presidential election race any more than anybody else. Uh, but certainly the, the stars are aligning where the potential for a democratic sweep is rising, and they do have some significant implications. Uh, I'm not saying it's a, it's a given, but portfolio managers need to be aware of the increasing odds of that and either uh, hedging some of their investments or gaining some exposure of what we think will do well in a situation where the Democrats do actually sweep. Um, so on the China-U.S. Dis trade dispute, uh, that is not going to get much better uh, with a Biden or a win uh, you know, and a Democratic sweep. Uh, the anti-China view is pretty bipartisan, uh, especially around issues of fairness and trade. However, uh, 
it is clear that, you know, in Trump's previous four years as president, uh, his um, his banter and his surprise announcements, his use of Twitter, uh, these things will all increase the volatility. Uh, so I think the Democrats are going to be uh, as firm uh, and, and against China. And it's likely that the, uh, you know, the trade agreement, you know, is uh, unraveled. Uh, but I think the volatility is much higher with, with a Trump White House. Uh, around fiscal stimulus, um, as we all know, there have been lots of efforts since August to try and put together uh, another uh, COVID-related package. The two parties couldn't agree. Uh, it became clear as we got closer to the election that the Democrats under Pelosi had little incentive to budge and, and throw uh, the White House uh, any favors or a bone before the election. Um, while we're still, you know, it's not completely dead as we sit here in early October, um, the likelihood of a major uh, across the board stimulus package is quite low. Coming out, if the Democrats do sweep, uh, you can expect a significant expenditure in things like infrastructure, clean energy, uh, renewable energy. Um, the, the, the bill to pay for this, you know, there is some conversation about raising taxes. Uh, so corporate taxes are, are likely to be going up. Capital gains taxes could go up. Um, there, there, there's a discussion about possibly like a book value tax uh, on, uh, on large corporations. So uh, I think the taxation component uh, will be different uh, between uh, a Trump White House and a Biden White House, especially the Democrat sweep. And I think that will play into the capital markets. Um, you know, one can, one can infer from what I've said that inflation risks will be slightly higher uh, in uh, a Democratic sweep because we're looking at a fair bit of spending that won't completely be soaked up by increased taxes. So therefore, you know, more bond issuance and the potential for broader money growth, um, you know, does increase the inflation risks sort of by the summer of 2021 into the back half of 2021. Okay, great. Uh, and so depending on the outcome of the election, the fiscal stimulus package can vary significantly. So uh, GOP wants, uh, they prefer a 750 billion versus Dems are looking for 2.2 trillion. And so obviously the Fed is closely monitoring the situation and it adjusts its levers accordingly to support the economy. Can you comment on the Fed's potential next steps related to rates, quantitative easing, and uh, also their shift from paying closer attention to an average inflation versus a target inflation? Uh, and then finally, how is the bond market reacting to this leading up to the elections? Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. Like, how do we tie this into sort of what's, what's going on in the markets? Um, you know, clearly, Powell, the Powell-led Fed uh, has been pointing to the need for increased stimulus. From a pure economics perspective, the hole that was created, uh, you know, February through May in the U.S. economy, and for that matter, the global economy, through the, you know, the rolling lockdowns and gradual reopenings, that hole is nowhere close to being filled. Um, and we're looking at likely a, a higher unemployment rate coming out of this as even as we normalize economic activity. And so those are the factors and the evidence that the Fed is pointing to when they suggest more fiscal is needed. Also, the fact that the, the Fed is at zero interest rates and expanding its balance sheet through QE, uh, it, it doesn't mean the Fed's out of bullets, but it certainly means the Fed would like to see more fiscal. 
What does it mean for Fed policy going forward? Well, the Fed's been pretty clear. If you look at their, uh, you know, their, their dot plot, their economic projections are, you know, no move in interest rates at the front end until 2023 at the earliest. Um, you know, that's just a forecast by them. Uh, so, you know, take that with a grain of salt because the Fed's not necessarily the best forecasters in the world. But they're not going to change policy is what that means. So they're going to stay at the zero bound, uh, you know, for as long as they possibly can, uh, for as long as they think they need to be. Um, as far as what they might do to, to tweak QE, um, they certainly are discussing ideas around yield curve control. I will point out this one thing about yield curve control. Uh, there's a sense amongst investors that yield curve control works, full stop. And I, I think that's dead wrong. Uh, I don't think yield curve works full stop. I think yield curve works if you're in an economy that's prone to disinflation or deflation. So people will point to J the Japanese situation and say, see, the Japanese are using yield curve control. They're able to keep 10-year rates low without having to buy all these 10-year bonds. Um, but what they forget is that Japan has been mired in three decades of disinflation slash deflationary environment. So in that kind of an environment, um, the ability to jawbone uh, longer dated bonds uh, going up in yield and down in price is easier. I would argue that yield curve control will fail miserably in an environment where investors are in expecting increasing inflation risks. Okay, If the scenario changes 12 months out that the market believes that all the efforts around the pandemic in creating much larger broad-based money growth will result in higher inflation. And the magnitude uh, isn't that important at this point. I don't think we're talking about hyperinflation. We're probably not even talking about inflation to 5%. But if the expectation is that inflation is gonna be above three instead of below one uh, or one and a half, then yield curve control will not work. Uh, essentially every for-profit pool of capital will sell all their bonds to the Fed and the Fed's balance sheet will just balloon. So yield curve control is not a magic bullet. Uh, if we get in a situation where there's, a, there's an inflation expectations are, are rising. This podcast is provided as a general source of information and should not be considered personal, legal, accounting, tax, or investment advice or construed as an endorsement or recommendation of any entity or security discussed. Investors should seek the advice of professionals prior to implementing any changes to their investment. Certain statements in this podcast are forward-looking that are predictive in nature, depend upon, or refer to future events or conditions. Forward-looking statements are subject to risks, uncertainties, and assumptions that could cause actual results to differ materially from those set forth. Although the forward-looking statements contained herein are based upon what CI Global Asset Management and the Portfolio Manager believe to be reasonable assumptions, neither CI Global Asset Management nor the Portfolio Manager can assure that actual results will be consistent with these forward-looking statements. Certain statements contained in this podcast are based in whole or in part on information provided by third parties, and CI Global Asset Management has taken reasonable steps to ensure their accuracy. Market conditions may change, which may impact the information contained in this podcast. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses all may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the prospectus before investing.
The indicated rates of return are the historical annual compounded total returns, net of fees and expenses, payable by the fund, including changes in security value and reinvestment of all dividends or distributions, and do not take into account sales, redemption, distribution, or optional charges or income taxes payable by any security holder that would have reduced returns. Mutual funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently, and past performance may not be repeated.